And now, uh, let us turn to our scripture for today. Today's passage comes from Exodus 20, verse 8 to 11. It is again Exodus 20, verse 8 to 11. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline, and I would like to wish you a very happy new year. And thank you for being with us to start your new year off by worshiping with us. We're continuing our teaching series this morning on rest. Very important topic after the whole uh, celebration of Christmas during the month of December. It's a very important topic for us as Americans. We don't tend to rest well. Now we started last week by first looking at God. Genesis 1 introduces us to God the worker. He's a God who likes to work and he likes the result of his work. You turn to the page to chapter 2 and you discover that God also rests that he isn't constantly busy, churning, driven inside. He's never able to stop. Instead, our God rests. He enjoys working and he enjoys resting. As you keep reading, you're introduced to human beings. We're told that humans are made in God's image. God takes these images of himself, these creatures who are like him, and he puts them in the garden. He tells them to work, to work the garden, to take care of it. And you learn there that God is the capital W worker, and human beings are lowercase w workers. So okay, you're reading through Genesis, and you think, well, what logically follows now? Here's God, the worker and rester. You expect then to see his images reflect him by being workers and resters, only they're not. Sin enters the picture. It disrupts their relationship with God, but it also disrupts their relationship with work and with rest. We become workaholics. We become restless. God refuses to accept that new state of affairs, and so he sets about recreating, restarting creation. He starts a friendship with a man named Abraham, a friendship that he will extend to all of Abraham's descendants. He rescues those descendants from people who hate them so that those people can then have a friendship with him, but they don't know how to relate to him. And so he gives them his laws as a reflection of who he is that tells them what he's like, but also tells them how to interact with him. And one of those commands, the fourth one that David just read, is about something called the Sabbath day. It's a resetting of their relationship with work by introducing, reintroducing rest. Now, this is a command that God thinks is just great. While most all of the other laws start with something that you are not to do. You shall not have any other gods before me. You shall not make an image of me for yourself. You shall not misuse my name. You shall not murder. You shall not steal, covet, lie. While most of the rest start with something you shall not do, this one starts with something you shall do. You shall remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. 
God is telling you that this is a day whose nature is fundamentally positive. It's not a day that is first and foremost defined by restriction, by things you do not do. Instead, it starts with something you do. You remember the Sabbath day. You keep the Sabbath day holy. There are things that you will not do, but those are under this larger umbrella of God framing this as a positive day. You keep reading the scripture and you discover that this command is really special to God. In the five books of Moses, God references Sabbath and keeping Sabbath more often than he does any of the other commands. There's something about the Sabbath that's really special to him. So special that later on in scripture, in Isaiah chapter 58, God will call it a day of delight. A day of delight, of happiness, of something that is beneficial. Not simply a day that is life-sustaining, but it's a day that is life-giving, life-energizing. People will later turn it into something that is crushing, draining, something burdensome, but Jesus will rebuke them in Mark chapter 2 by saying that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It's a day made for us. It's made for our benefit. Not a day to enslave us or to weigh us down. It's a positive, happy thing. It's a life-giving command that you think, well, people would just be thrilled to obey this, right? God loves it. You'd expect then for his images to love it. And that's not the case. His images think this is an awful command. The very first people to hear of it, the Israelites, they can't even get out of the wilderness before they refuse to rest. In Exodus 16, God feeds them with manna. He makes bread that appears on the ground in the morning. They're supposed to come out and pick it up. But he says, I'm not going to give you bread every single morning. Instead, on the sixth day, pick up twice as much because on the seventh day, there won't be any. Why? It's a day for you to rest, to rest from work. But when the seventh day rolls around, a number of people go out to look for breakfast anyway. They figure they can't afford to rest. Later, we find in Numbers 15, one man has so little regard for the Sabbath that he starts working in broad daylight where everyone can see his contempt for this command. God will later expand this command to allow the land to Sabbath. He doesn't just think about people, the animate creation. He also thinks about the inanimate creation. God's an environmentalist. He wants the land to rest from being farmed. And yet this is a command that the Israelites refused to obey. In fact, one of the reasons that they were sent into exile, according to Nehemiah, is that they refused to Sabbath. And yet even when they returned from exile, they still struggled to obey this. They engaged in all kinds of commerce and commercial activities on the seventh day. For them, it was a day just like any other. It was a day to catch up on all the other things that they had got, hadn't gotten to earlier in the week which is how a lot of people view it today. It's a day where God's command, it feels kind of like a nice idea, but it's a little naive. Certainly not an idea that fits into the modern world. It's a command that is inconvenient at best. At worst, it's going to set you back even further than you already are. And so lots of people feel free to ignore it. To ignore it without wondering if there's a connection between their spiritual state and their refusal to rest. God says, here's a day of delight, a day of rest, a day to recharge your spiritual batteries, a day that I have blessed and made holy. And we're like, yeah, no. God, you don't understand. I got stuff to do. 
And then we get up on Monday morning and we wonder why we feel spiritually flat, stale, why we don't feel rested, why we're not overflowing inside, ready to go. Now, Sabbath may not be the whole answer to why you feel like that, if you feel like that, but if you're not spiritually energized Monday morning and you're blowing off the fourth commandment, maybe it's worth rethinking. We're going to do that this morning by asking three questions. First, why do we resist taking a Sabbath? Why is taking one day to rest universally hard for us as human beings? Why is it hard both for ancient people and for modern people to Sabbath? Why do we resist Sabbath? Second, why should we take a Sabbath? If we're going to consider doing so, are there good reasons? I mean, we have lots of reasons not to. Are there any good reasons to do so? And then third, what's involved in a Sabbath? There are so many ways that people have screwed this up and tied themselves up in knots. Is there a way to Sabbath so that it has that sense of delight rather than a sense of burden? Can it be a day of joy? So why do we resist Sabbath? Why should we Sabbath? And what's involved in taking a Sabbath? First, why do we resist the Sabbath? That, the answer to that goes back to what God did after creating. You find it in verse 11 of our passage where we learn that it was after the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, that he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now think about what God just did there. He took a portion of time and asserted his ownership over it. He took one day and made it holy. That means he set it apart. He made it so that it was no longer like the other days. It was now different from them. And this activity is totally unique in the ancient world. When other nations talked about their gods, they would talk about their gods as establishing their authority over a place. The god would set up a temple to mark his or her territory. They would set that space aside as a space that was special to them, that was holy, holy to them, as belonging to them in a particular way that it did not belong to anyone else. And God doesn't do that. God sets apart time as special to him. And by doing so, he's establishing himself as greater than any other God could be. See, ancient people could claim their God was powerful by saying, look, he, she, rules over this space here. But when God sets aside a day, when he makes it holy, he's claiming that he rules over everything that happens within that day. And in that sense, by implication, he's claiming ownership over all space. He's not interested in owning what happens in some small temple in, on an isolated bit of ground. Instead, by setting aside this one day, he turns the entire universe into his temple. And he claims it all for his own. The French Revolution in the 18th century understood this. In 1793, they replaced the Gregorian calendar with a new one. Their calendar had 10 days in each week instead of seven. It was an extension of the metric system into the realm of time. But according to Eviatar Zerubbabel, a sociologist who studies time, the calendar was more than simply an extension of the metric system. 
Instead, it functioned, quote, as a representation of three main themes of the French Enlightenment, secularism, naturalism, and rationalism. And it did so intentionally to disrupt church-attending practices, since it presented both practical and cognitive difficulties in keeping up with the traditional sacred seven-day cycle. Another writer and historian, Charles Gliazzo, writes in a similar kind of way that the whole point was to break up the liturgical cycle of the church, and that a central goal was, quote, not only to destroy an old faith, but to supply a new faith, which would be in conformity with the new age, to give a supreme significance to the rise of science, the growth of the state, and the improvement of civilization, end quote. In other words, the French revolutionaries understood that a weekly Sabbath of one day following six days established God's authority over all that there is. And so in direct opposition to God's claims, they set up their own system, a secular system, to declare their freedom from him by imposing their own mastery over time. They forced the entire nation to adjust to this new calendar, a calendar that only lasted for 12 years before they had to actually revert back to a regular seven-day cycle, even though a seven-day week is really awkward to work with. You ever tried to do something every other day, you know, like exercise? If you have, you've discovered that a seven-day cycle just throws you off all the time. There's an interruption that imposes itself on your routine. It's an interruption that reminds you, you are not sovereign over all time and space. And so you can say to yourself, you know what, I wanna exercise the first day of the week. I wanna, I wanna exercise every Monday, and I'm gonna exercise every other day, so I'm gonna exercise Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. But then what happens on Friday? You think, well, I, okay, now I go two days, that would be Sunday, but to get back to Monday, and then I have to go just one day, and you have this interruption, your rhythm is broken, your calendar's thrown off. It happens if you try to do something every other day. It happens if you try to do something every three days, every four days. A seven-day week breaks up whatever rhythm you try to establish. And yet, as the French found out, as awkward as it is, a seven-day cycle is incredibly persistent. It keeps breaking back into time. There's something to a seven-day cycle that is built into us. It's built into the rhythm of the universe. It's a rhythm that people want to return to even if you re-educate an entire nation for over a decade. But it is a rhythm that comes with a reminder. When God says that he set apart one day out of seven as holy, he reminds us that everything that we have comes from him, including time. And therefore, it's not up to us to decide whatever we want to do with our time and, and everything inside of time. Instead, the Sabbath reminds us that creation is ours by gift, that God gave it to us, not, and it's not ours by right. And in our fallenness, we don't like that. God tells us, take one of these seven days that I'm giving you and rest from working on it, and there's something inside of us that, that rises up as we are told what to do and says no. We don't like that God sets the terms by which we enter into life and engage it. We don't like his lordship over us, and so we reject his ownership. We resist keeping the Sabbath. 
just like we resist keeping every command that God gives us. God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, and we find reasons to ignore him, to not take a Sabbath, even though it would help us. Why? We want to be our own lords over our own time. We don't want him telling us what to do, and that's true of all people, regardless of whether they're ancient or modern, French or American. Now let me take a two-minute aside here. If the universe is an accidental collection of matter that's only here because of a blind evolutionary process, then the French are right. There is no need for Sabbath keeping. There's no need for seven day weeks. In a universe that's constructed by random chance events that just happen to produce life, there's nothing that says you should mark time in seven day intervals. Instead, you have complete freedom to mark time any way that you want or you have complete freedom not to mark time in any way that you don't want. Either way, marking it or not marking it, either way is equally meaningful in that universe because in a world that has no creator, there is no meaning to keeping time or not keeping time. Either way is equally meaningful because neither way has any meaning. In that kind of world, there is no need to set aside one day to keep it holy. In that system, no days are holy. No time is holy. And there's no need then to obey this command. You're free from God's demands on your time. In that world, there is no need to obey this command. But be careful. Because if there's no need to obey this command, then there's no need to obey any of the commands. They're all equally meaningless. Take the worst ones. There's no reason not to kill someone if they're in your way because letting them live is meaningless. Taking their life is meaningless. You say, well, wait a minute. Uh, killing them matters to them. It's meaningful to them. That's not true. In a meaningless world, they're living a meaningless existence. They think it's meaningful, but they're actually deceived. They came from nothing. They're going to nothing, which means that everything they do in between nothing and nothing means nothing. They don't have a meaningful life. You don't have a meaningful life. So killing them doesn't matter to them. It doesn't matter to you. In that worldview, there's no reason not to. Just like there's no reason not to steal from someone if you can get away with it. Or to lie to someone if they won't catch you. Or to covet what someone else has since they can't see what you're actually doing inside of you. In a meaningless world, you can do whatever you want because nothing has meaning. Without a creator who created with his intentions, a creator who asserts his ownership over everything that he has made, there is no need to obey anything at any time. So if you hate obeying God and you want to get rid of his ownership, his right to tell you what to do, then join the French and get rid of the Sabbath command. Resist God at this fundamental level but be careful, because in that same moment, you've taken away any reason to obey any of the rest of his commands as well. You've created a new world order, a new philosophy. It comes with a new calendar. But at the same time, you've taken away any necessary reason for why we should treat each other in any special kind of way. You've taken away the foundation of fairness and equity, of respect and mutual care for each other. 
You've taken away the reason for why you should treat someone fairly. You've taken away the reason for why someone should treat you fairly. You've opened the door to each person doing whatever they can get away with when they can get away with it. You've taken away the rationale for a just society. Without a lawgiver who is over all of us, there can be no law that is binding on any of us. There's no reason why we have to treat each other fairly. But with a lawgiver, you have equal respect and dignity for everyone who is made in his image. You have equality. His laws give you the foundation for that equality. But his laws do come with that reminder that he is sovereign over all creation. He has the right to tell you what to do. And that means that you're going to have to embrace laws that you don't necessarily like, like the fourth commandment, the one that challenges your autonomy to do what you want when you want to do it. That's point one. Why is it that we human beings universally resist the Sabbath? It's because it challenges our autonomy over our own lives. We don't like that. So second point then, why should we Sabbath? Now, if we were in a conversation, you asked me that, I would be inclined to turn that question around and ask you, if you're not going to obey one of the Ten Commandments, isn't the burden of proof more on you to give a reason for why you don't instead of asking why you should? And having been in these conversations, I could imagine someone saying, well, Jesus came to fulfill the law, therefore, I don't need to. And there's something to that argument, but there's also a lot of confusion that gets mixed in with that. For instance, nobody argues that Jesus fulfilling the law means that the rest of the Ten Commandments are no longer valid. No one argues that we can now dishonor our mother and our father because Jesus fulfilled the law, or that it's okay to kill each other because Jesus fulfilled the law or that we can steal from and lie to each other, that we can covet what each other has. No one argues that. None of those commands are erased when Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law. So why should the fourth commandment, it's in the same list, why should it be erased? Well, you might say, doesn't the New Testament talk about how the Sabbath is not something that we're obligated to anymore? It does, but it does so in a... Um, a way that is not strictly yes or no. Here's where it's helpful to understand that God's law operates on three different levels. If you don't understand these three levels, you will always be confused when you run into God's law. For God's law, there is a moral component, like moral component that is binding on all people for all time. Secondly, there's a ceremonial component to his law that pointed forward to the Messiah, that helped us understand who the Messiah would be and what he would accomplish. And thirdly, there's a civil component, that, uh, a set of laws that God gave to govern the nation of Israel so that they would be ready for the Messiah that he was sending. Those three levels were all in play in the Old Testament. They're not all in play in the New Testament because Jesus did come to fulfill the law. So both the ceremonial and the civil laws are abrogated. They're no longer in play for us. Why is that? When Christ died and rose again, all the ceremonial laws were fulfilled because the real part of what they came to, what they were there to point to had already happened. The civil laws that govern the nation of Israel, while God was getting his people ready for the, the Messiah, 
are also no longer in force because that Messiah has come. But the Sabbath is more than a ceremonial or a civil law. It appears in the Ten Commandments, which puts it in a different category, puts it in the moral category that reflects God's eternal nature and his character. It's not in a temporal category that is then superseded. But the Sabbath is uh, more than simply listed there. You can also see it's given rationales behind the command. Its rationale is it's based in creation because of what God does. God rests on the seventh day. It's based on what he himself has done in the world. And it's also based on what he did in building it into creation. He sets aside one day as holy before sin enters the picture. God takes one day and blesses it, makes it special, sanctifies it, sets it apart, not in response to sin, but in a perfect world, builds it into his world. That means then that you can choose, verse 8, to obey, to remember the Sabbath day, or you can choose not to, you can disobey, but your remembering the Sabbath day or your refusal to remember the Sabbath day does not change the reality that God built into the universe. The seventh day is holy, regardless of what you do with it. It's set apart because of what God did with it. When you keep the Sabbath, you're not making one day more special. You're simply entering into the specialness of that one day, the specialness of the rhythm that God has already established for you as part of creation. Your obedience does not create a holy day. Verse 8, you're simply keeping the day what it already is. You're keeping it holy. You're lining yourself up with the nature of the universe instead of running against the grain of the universe that God built. And you're doing this not to make God happy with you. You have to remember the place of law for God's people. Law was never a way of making people good enough for God. It's not why he gave his law. There's a preamble to the Ten Commandments that often gets forgotten. But before God ever tells you what you are to do in relating to him, he tells you what he's already done for you. He tells you, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, I am the Lord your God. I have loved you. I've rescued you. That's the basis of your relationship with God. Your relationship with God is based on who he is and what he's done for you. It's only after establishing that relationship on that basis that God goes on to say, now that we have a relationship, here's how you are to live with me. So you're not trying to obey God's commands in order to get him to like you. He already does. You obey out of your love for him because you want to live well with this one who has loved you. That's why we Sabbath, point two. We rest because our gracious God has entered into relationship with us. He's given us his good laws so that we can live life like he lives life, so that we can live a life that lines up with him and with his purposes for his creation. Which then brings us to point three. What's involved in Sabbath? This is really important, and I want to tread really lightly here. This was one of the most contentious issues that Jesus faced while he was here on this earth. 
At that time, people had added so many rules and so many restrictions about what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath that they kept challenging Jesus. They kept saying to him, here's all the things that you're doing wrong, according to our understanding, about how to live on the Sabbath. Now, part of the reason that they added so many rules is that God is relatively silent about how you go about remembering and keeping the Sabbath day holy. There's a lot of freedom in this command. The New Testament affirms that freedom. You read in Romans 14, Colossians 2, that we are not to judge each other for how we do or do not observe a Sabbath day. There really are aspects of the Sabbath that have been fulfilled. We now have even greater freedom than the Israelites had with the Sabbath. And yet even for the Israelites, there's really only two principles that guided how they were to remember the day, to keep it holy. First principle in verse 10, it is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. It's not simply a day off. It's not a day where you indulge yourself, where you become the center of your world, where you kick back, where you reinforce that life's all about you, it's all about relaxing. It's all about an endless vacation. Instead, this is a day that has a special focus on the Lord. Yes, all of life is about worship. We confessed that earlier. All of life is oriented around God. All of life is lived consciously before the face of God. There is no sacred secular division in your life. And so your work, your career, your studies, your chores at home, your work is all part of worship just like your rest is part of worship. And yet there is something special about the Sabbath. There is a holiness to it, a set-apartness. It has an intentional to the Lordness about it. He's the end toward which you direct everything about this day. And so principle one, the purpose of the day, has something to do with furthering your worship because it's set apart to the Lord. Second principle, it's rest-filled. God rested on the seventh day. Now you should rest on the seventh day. You say, well, what does rest mean? Verse 9, six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. So what is this work that you're not to do? It's the work that you did on the other six days when you labored, the six days that you spent laboring to provide for yourself, to provide food and clothes, to provide shelter, to provide things to enjoy, to provide for your present needs, to set up a future for yourself and the people that you love. You take all that good work that you've been doing and you take a break from it. You take a break from providing for yourself and you trust that God will provide for you even if you are not being productive 24-7. And you acknowledge your trust in him, your reliance on him to provide for you by resting from providing for yourself on that one day. So yes, you still engage in life-sustaining activities. You get food for yourself. You feed the baby. You take the dog for a walk. But you cease from the kind of work that you were doing those other six days to create the ability to have this life. And instead, you enter in and enjoy what God has provided for you in this world. You take time to enjoy what God has blessed you with. You rest from self-providing in such a way that this one day has a certain, say it this way, not sixness to it. 
And this is not a command that is just for you. It is for you, verse 10, for you. You shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. This one command sets up a whole new social order so that the one who works and the one who rests are not divided, not divided along gender lines, not divided along class lines, not divided along ethnic lines. Instead, everyone gets to enter into a rhythm of work and rest. Everyone gets to work. Everyone gets to provide for their own needs from their own labor. And everyone gets to take a break from providing for themselves. And they don't take a, get to take a break because they deserve to. They don't get to take a break because they've been productive enough, because they've earned it. It's a brand new society. They rest simply because they've joined themselves to the people of God. They've come under the protection of the God who works and who rests, and therefore, there is meaningful work and pleasurable rest for everyone. Those are the two principles in this passage. Keeping the Sabbath day should have something to do with an intentional Godward direction and something to do from, with ceasing from the self-providing labor of the previous six days. Sabbath should have something to do with worship and with rest. So when you think about the Sabbath, about what you're going to do or not do, let me urge you, learn to ask two questions. Ask yourself, will this thing that I am thinking about doing, will it help me worship? And will this thing help me rest? Will it help me worship and will it help me rest? If the answer to either one of those questions is no, maybe it's not a good Sabbath activity. Maybe you would be better off just saving it for another day. But if the answer to both of those questions is yes, that's what this day was made for. So go ahead and do your worship rest thing while you call the Sabbath a delight. Enjoy the day. Enter into Sabbath. Rest. And as you rest, worship. Worship by letting the day remind you that Jesus also rests. That right now, he's seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He's seated, not laboring. Why is that? It's because on the cross, he said, it is finished. It's all done. All my work on behalf of my people is complete. I have now worked to provide everything that they need. There's nothing more to be done. Nothing more for Jesus to do to connect you to God. Nothing more for Jesus to do to connect you to the world that he has made, to reconnect you to work and to reconnect you to rest. Nothing more for Jesus to do. Nothing more for you to do. It's what Hebrews chapter 10 tells us in verse 11. It says, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. The priests never rest. Why? They can't. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being made sanctified. 
His single offering was enough to perfect you, to take away your sins, including your restlessness, so that you are in this moment being sanctified, so that you are set apart. You are made holy so that you fit into the sanctified time, the sanctified space that Jesus is sovereign over. Jesus is resting right now because he finished his work. Because he finished providing for you what you need to restore your relationship with him and to restore your relationship with work. And because he rests, you also can rest. You can cease from laboring to make a life for yourself. You can gratefully, joyfully, accept, receive, embrace the life that he's given to you. Take Sabbath seriously. Rest today. Worship today. Enjoy today. And let this little tiny rest, this window of rest, whet your appetite for an eternity of life with this one who worked so hard for you for the simple pleasure of being able to rest in eternity with you. Lord God, let us enter into your rest. Let us be relieved from the anxiety and the churning and the upsetness, the constant struggle, the fear that we don't have enough that we need to provide for ourselves. Let us enter into what you have done for us. Lord, forgive us for the many times that we have decided we don't want your lordship over us, that we're better with time than you are. Lord, forgive us for the times that we've given ourselves a life of exhaustion. And Lord, allow us to enter in a new time to worship, to rest, to enjoy you and to enjoy being with you. In Jesus' name, amen.